Well, where do we belong? I love the chorus of that song, you know, love lift us up to where we belong. Another line in that song is, all we have is the here and now. Is that true or is there more than just the here and the now? And is there a way in which love, divine love, personal love, can not only create the best life now, but also the best life later? So in our series, we've been traveling on our globe from the Chichen Itza to the Colosseum to the Redeemer statue, and today we find ourselves in India at the Taj Mahal. If you've ever seen a picture of the Taj Mahal, many people, when you go there and hear a history of it, you'll primarily see it and hear the story of this monument built between an emperor and his love for his wife. So my wife just says she wants her own Taj Mahal, but she'd like it before she dies. <laughs> Good luck, honey. It's a powerful story of love, and I think that's usually all you hear, but the main reason he wrote, built this was actually to communicate his Islamic faith and how he perceived God, how he perceived paradise, how to understand his love for his wife, but also how he perceived how the Islamic faith in the, in the Quran teaches how Allah loves. What we're going to find, and what we're going to discover as we compare and contrast Islamic faith from the Judeo-Christian uh, faith, is we're going to discover that there's a difference between a monument to love and a monumental love. That even the way in which God loves is radically different depending on the faith that you're looking at. And there is a difference between, there's no doubt this is a beautiful monument, it is amazing architecture, it, it is an amazing garden. But what we're really going to look at is what is monumental love and what was he trying to communicate through the architecture about faith and those things we wonder about. Specifically, the thing I think we all wonder about, is it better to have loved and lost would have never have loved at all. I have a new caregiver who's helping out with our son, Quinn, and she's uh, from, from uh, Bosnia, and she actually has an Islamic faith. So we get all kinds of really great dialogues describing kind of the difference between the Christian faith and Islamic faith, where they're similar, where they're different. And she said to me in our first conversation something I really love. She said, well, but Chad, I think it's just like same God, different font. Same God, different font. I said, well, I certainly like the idea of that. It might be just different perspectives. I said, but when you dig into the details, you might find it's a little bit different than just the font choices. There might be some fundamental differences we need to wrestle with on who is God, what is paradise, do we have free choice? And if we do have free choice, was it worth it to God to love us, even if he would lose us for a time in order to get us again? So that's what we're going to explore together by looking at three inscriptions on the Taj Mahal. The first inscription I want to look at brings up the wonder, I wonder how God loves us when we're not lovable. <laughs> it's easy to love people when they're, when they're lovable, but how does God love us when we ignore him? How does God love us when we don't prioritize him? Think as a parent, you love your kids, you sacrifice for your kids, and then your kids get mad at you, and for several years they think, you know what, I'll just see you on Mother's Day. Well, that just feels disrespectful. That feels wrong. I, I should be prioritized more. I want you to value me the way I value you. Well, same thing for God. How does God, Allah, Jehovah, Jesus, how does God perceive us or love us when we're not lovable, when we don't meet our own standards, let alone His, when we don't prioritize Him and make Him the 20th, 30th, 40th priority? Well, as you enter into the Taj Mahal, the first thing you see is this beautiful archway. And what looks like just incredible ornate designs around the outside, that's actually Persian calligraphy. 
So it's actually going around the whole entrance are quotes from the, the Quran. These are different surahs. So in the Bible, it's called chapter and verse. In the Quran, it's called surahs. And so the whole entryway is an invitation to paradise, but also an invitation to exactly how Allah loves. So one of the surahs that you'll see right here on the edge in that border area, it says, Allah loves those who turn to Him, those who repent, and purify themselves. Now, all faiths talk about turning toward God, doing the right thing, uh, purifying yourself. But what we're going to find as you go into the Taj Mahal is that Allah doesn't love you when you're an infidel. He doesn't love you when you're, when you're falling away from Him. He doesn't love you when you're doing the wrong thing. He only loves you when you become lovable. You clean yourself up and pull yourself up by the bootstraps. In fact, as you move into the Taj Mahal, you move from an invitation to paradise to get closer and closer to the mausoleum, and it starts saying, warning, O infidels, for judgment is coming, and, and, and you're going to stand before God, and, and hopefully you can pray that He might even let in the faithful. In fact, right on the mausoleum, as we'll see, there's a prayer by the angels that say, O Allah, please let the faithful into paradise, let alone the faithless. Now, contrast it with Christianity. Christianity comes as a very different view of God's love. God does want us to repent. He wants us to turn to Him. He wants us to do the right thing, without a doubt. But Romans says God demonstrates His own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, in the moment we were at our worst, when He knew all our secrets, when we didn't prioritize Him, we didn't keep our promises, when we were unkind, and when we were impatient, and when we were loud and obnoxious, it was at that moment he not only loved us, he was willing to die for us in our worst moments. Well, this is quite a contrast. Does God love you when you're unlovable, or does he just love you when you clean yourself up? I think a person who knew this firsthand was Chuck Colson. If you don't know the name Chuck Colson, he was uh, part of the huge scandal with Watergate. And at the time, he was probably the most powerful man next to the president working for Nixon of anyone in the country. People came to him for favors. People came to him for influence. He, he had people invite him to all the big parties. And then when Watergate was exposed, in a matter of moments, he suddenly was on trial, imprisoned, and in jail. Lost his friends, lost his influence, lost his power. He was certainly an atheist before that. Now sitting in a prison cell... Someone came and introduced him to a God who loved him even in this failure, even in this horrific thing he had done. And he began to investigate the claims of Christianity, that there could be a God that loves us at our worst, that would have a plan for us when we're not at our best. And this so revolutionized him, the hope he got in prison, that he came out of prison years later and he would develop a ministry to people in prison called Prison Fellowship to bring hope to people in prison all over the world. And he saw lives change, tens of thousands. But in his investigation of Christianity, he said that Watergate gave him confidence in the research he did on the resurrection of Jesus. Does that sound crazy? I love this quote. Here's what he says. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Twelve men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put to prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. 
Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep that lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. He discovered that the nature of Christianity, the nature of grace, is that God loves us at our worst. Second inscription that makes us wonder about some things is, I wonder if it's better to have loved and lost than to never loved at all. Well, ask any grieving spouse, and, and I get to talk to many of them as we do funerals a lot around here. Not one of them would say, the horrific grief and pain I'm in, as horrible as it is, as difficult as it is, I would never give up my 40 years of marriage, my 50 years of marriage. To love and lose is far better to never have loved. And the same thing is true not only in our mortal lives, but certainly true of God's perspective. Would God take a risk to give us free choice? And who do you say it's better to give you a chance to love me and choose not to? Is it worth the risk? When you walk into the mausoleum, one of the first things you see are tombs of the emperor and his wife. There's inscriptions all over the place, and now they get a little bit more focused on end times and infidels and, and the judgment day and, and preparing yourself, and you better be prepped for Allah. Now, these two tombs aren't the real tombs because Islamic practices don't allow you to put the dead on display. So these are decorative tombs. The real tombs are, are a different location. But here in one of the inscriptions in this room is that prayer I mentioned earlier, praying, God, please, Allah, please, by your angels, petition, and Muhammad, please let the faithful into paradise. That maybe if you clean yourself up and make yourself well, then maybe Allah, maybe, hopefully, he'll let you in. Now, Jesus shows up with a radical different mission. Jesus' mission statement, he declares in Luke, is that I'm the son of man, and I've come to seek and save the lost. I came to find people who are broken and make mistakes and people who don't live up to their own standards. In fact, Jesus says it's not the, the, the healthy that need a doctor. I'm a doctor. I've come to help the sick. Radical different views. Reminds me a little bit of a story. It's a parable. I, think, I don't know if it's a true story or not, but it's a neat little parable about a kid who was making his own sailboat. He spent months putting this thing together, just piece by piece, detail upon detail, painted on himself. He created this thing with his own two hands. And finally, the day it was ready to go, he took it out to the river. And he took this thing, and the river was pretty wide, but he was, he was going to wade out. So he pushed that thing into the river, and man, not only did it float, the, the, the current was taking it just slightly down. So he could walk along and just watch his sailboat move. However, the wind began to grow. and began to push it farther and farther away from shore, and he couldn't quite wade out far enough to get to it. And then the wind caught those sails he made, and it just flew out of his reach. And he was devastated. He loved that boat. He created that boat. Now he's lost that boat. To his shock, about six months later, he's walking by a toy store in downtown area he lived in, and he sees his boat that he loved. And that boat is right there in the, in the, in the main area to be bought. He walks in, that's my boat. So maybe it's your boat. Somebody turned that in. And somebody, uh, I, I bought that boat. We're selling that boat. You got to buy that boat, son. What? They gave him the price, and it was like a, a number that the little kid just couldn't imagine. 
As he came home for the next few weeks and months, he saved and saved and worked and sacrificed. He said, I will do anything to get my boat back. I'll go anywhere, fix anything, do any, any uh, odd job. And he finally, after months and months, comes and hasn't sold yet. And he brings the cash and he puts it on the counter, the coins and dollars crumpled up. And he buys back the boat. As he takes his boat home that day, he's looking at the boat, and just out of the overflow of his love, he actually says out loud, you, O sailboat, are twice mine, for once I created you. Secondly, I bought you back. And that is the picture of how Christianity describes God's relationship with us. God made us, and because of free will, he lost us. And God, through great sacrifice to himself, coming to earth, leaving his multidimensional reality, great sacrifice to himself, being crucified on a cross, he says, God says, I will do anything to get you back. But it's better to have loved and lost you with free will than to have had just a robotic relationship with you. See, that's another stark contrast between Christianity and, and Islam, is do you believe in free will or do you believe in what's called determinism? See, in, in the Quran... It's what's called determinism, which is that everything is God's will. Everything is Allah's will. Here's just a couple surahs that support that. By no means can anything befall us, his creatures, that God, Allah, has not destined for us. Everything that happens to you is God's will. Further, he, Allah, leads astray whom he will. So if you lead astray, it was God's will. He led you astray for a reason, and he guides whom he will. God misleads whom he will, and he will guide who he will. Now, Christianity comes and says, well, that's a view that's not our view. That's not how we perceive God and his goodness. So Christianity comes in the very opening chapters of, of the Bible. It describes God creating a garden, very similar, paradise. And yet he gives his creatures free will. You may freely choose to eat or freely not choose to eat. Freely choose to love me or freely choose to love something else. God says it was worth loving and losing. Because if you don't have a choice, you don't have love. And mankind chose to rebel against him and do his own thing. And the view of the Bible is that God is transcendent. He's outside of his creation. And though he's given creation the ability to do the wrong thing, God is never the cause, never the author of evil. God is only consistent with his own nature, to be faithful, to be truthful, to be... Here's what it says in James. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he ever tempt anyone. He doesn't lead people astray. So again, this is a fundamental difference on how we perceive reality. God, problem with life, do you really have free will to make choices? Is, it choose, is, your, is your choice just your chemistry like atheism would teach, or is it always God's will? This kind of brings us to another question. Is it better to work really hard to try and achieve paradise, which is kind of what Islam and other religions teach, is to work hard enough, and you, you don't know if you ever made enough, you kind of pray like you did on the inscription, hopefully you'll let me in if I'm faithful enough, but... How do you know if you're faithful enough? Or do we need someone else more powerful than us to restore the paradise we lost? Can we really achieve it or fix it by ourselves? Or do we need someone else to save it, fix it for us? That's a fundamental question we need to wonder about. And when you look at the Taj Mahal, there's a, there's a scholar that did a really interesting paper. And he basically, it's about the, the myth of the Taj Mahal and a new theory of its symbolism. He says, if you look at the Taj Mahal from the top down, 
the whole thing is laid out with the gardens, with the, the structures, to be a picture of end times eschatology, that just means judgment day, in the Islamic world. So as you come in at the bottom, I won't go over all the details, you come in and you have to find out whether or not you're in the book, and you're going to know whether or not you get into heaven because the very next two things are whether or not you go to paradise or whether you go to hell. And the determination there, with Muhammad watching on, is going to be based on how well you do on the scales of justice. And this is throughout the Islamic uh, teaching. I got a chance to read about two-thirds of it about ten years ago. But here's one classic quote. There's many like this. Here's Allah speaking. We set up scales of justice for the day of judgment. Even if a deed is the weight of a mustard seed, we will bring it forth, for we are as a vigilant reckoner. That's weird that says we, right? Because Allah's main thing about uh, Christianity is that God is a uh, we. He's a three and one. In, in Islam, God's a, a, God's one God. There's no one plus one plus one equals one. So when you translate from the Aramaic, uh, the, the Arabic rather, to the English, the word we kind of loses some meaning. In, in its original translation, in, in their book, it means to be powerful or to be mighty. It does not in any way communicate plurality. But look what he's saying. Yeah, God wants you to get into heaven, but here's how you get in. There's a scale. And God's going to weigh your good deeds, and he's going to weigh your bad deeds. But even if there's one little weight the size of a mustard seed, which <laughs> those are small seeds, on this side, you're not going to get away with anything. For God is a vigilant reckoner. Christianity comes and says, yeah, God does have a scale, and he's going to weigh your good deeds and bad deeds, and quite frankly, no one's going to do real well because your good deeds aren't nearly as good as you think they are, and your bad deeds are far worse than you think they are. So Christianity came and said, if you put your faith in me, I would do anything to get you back, anything to restore paradise. So I came and literally went to hell itself on your behalf, and I took the punishment for your bad deeds, every little iota, every little mustard seed, I took all that off the scale by paying for it myself. And then, since your good deeds aren't that hot anyway, they're not as good as you think they are, what if you took all my good deeds, Jesus says, everything I did right, how faithful I was, and I'll put my faithfulness on this side of the scale, boom. And now you get into heaven, not based on what you do for God, but based on what God did for you. And that's why the message of Christianity is this monumental love. God says, I wanted you. I saw you lost. I saw you falling. I saw you not going to do a roll on the scale. I did anything. I went to hell and back for you. There's a, a book. It's called Paradise Lost by John Milton. It's kind of a classic if you've never read it before. But it actually describes the Christian idea that God made a paradise. He's willing for paradise to be lost so that he could restore it again. There's a, a quote you may have heard from the book. Here's a pretty famous quote. Better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. And it's the idea that this mindset in all of us, I'd rather face the consequences of doing everything I want to do my own way, even if it was in hell, than to serve under some God telling me what to do all the time. He said that's the mindset that's a problem with human beings. He goes on to say, the mind is its own place. It can make a heaven of hell. You ever seen that in other people's life or in your own life? You, you, you choose things that are bad for you, but you keep doing it because you made a heaven out of, I know that works, I know that'll help me, I know that'll satisfy, and it doesn't. You made a heaven out of hell. But the mind can also make a hell out of heaven. The good advice, the good wisdom, 
<laughs> that you gave your kids, right? Oh, I don't need to listen to that. Because you did to your parents, I don't need to listen to that. You made a hell out of heaven. And so this novel is really a story of, of the Christian idea that God wants to restore heaven. And, and he wanted so to restore heaven, so to restore paradise that was lost, that Jesus said, I will do anything. I will take on anything. I will suffer anything to show you my love. So for God, the answer is simple. It was a painful, yes, but it's better to have loved and lost because I'll find you again. I was at the ATP a couple years ago, and uh, I was with my friend Ron and a buddy I didn't know. As we're kind of walking along the ATP, going to the next tennis match, this guy shared with me he was not a person of faith, didn't really believe in any particular faith, but he'd been married for it was either 50 or 60 years. It was some unbelievable number. And he had just recently lost his spouse last year. And we just began to discuss, discuss the grief and the pain and the loneliness of just having never been alone before. And I said, what are kind of things that you're, you're finding solace in or hope in during this time? He said, well, I picked up a book by a guy named C.S. Lewis. I said, oh, he's written a lot of stuff. What'd you pick up? He said, I picked up a book called The Grief Observed, which is a really personal account of, of C.S. Lewis describing the loss of his wife, which brought up all the memories of grief from the loss of his mother so many years ago. He said, yeah, I didn't know he was a Christian philosopher. I just know here's a guy talking honestly about dealing with the feelings of grief. And what struck me, he said, as I was reading the book, is a couple things. He was so honest about the pain of it and the grief of it and the loss of it. But also he had confidence that his wife was going to be in paradise. He didn't hope or wish. He knew that. And he knew he would be in paradise with her. And that not goodbye but see you later gave him some, some solace in the midst of the grief. And his confidence wasn't based on her being a good person or him being a good person. It was based on what Jesus did for him. He also had this idea that, that God of the universe doesn't kind of watch, up, watch from afar and watch us suffer. He said, the God of the universe, he described, was a God who came into this earth and he suffered. He lost a good friend named John the Baptist to incredible injustice. He watched his own son die on a cross. God knows what it is to suffer for people he loves. And so his journey toward Christ was really seeing that his journey of, is it better to have loved and lost, he would never trade those 60 years with his wife. He was starting to understand how God might feel the same. Which brings us to our third inscription, which brings us to the third question. I wonder, I wonder how God loves or who God loves when God is alone. You may have never have thought that before, but, but think of it just real quick. It's, it's a little philosophical, but it's also personal. If God is loving, whatever you call him, how can he be loving until someone exists? Right? If God is just God, then he had to make something so he could be God by loving something. And if God had to make something to be God, then he's not a really good God, but he's now dependent on the thing he makes in order to express himself. A little philosophical, but here is why Christianity and Islamic faith are so different. Islam says God is one, and he's one true God and nothing else. And Christianity says, might be, but if he is, then Allah can't be loving because he couldn't love anything until he made something. Therefore, he's dependent on that something. In Christianity, God is a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. So before he made anything, 
the Father loved the Son, and the Son loved the Father. And yeah, we don't fully understand it because God's a multidimensional being beyond our time and space, but that would make sense if He's God. We shouldn't fully be able to comprehend Him. And He could fully be God before He made anything because He could love each other, He could celebrate with each other, He could be humble with one another, He could defer to one another. God is self-sustaining in His love. Well, this is where you see Christianity and Islam have a major distinction. There's an old uh, parable told of five blind men who are trying to describe an elephant. And one's got the ear and it says, God, an elephant is like a a big flappy piece of paper. The other blind man says, no, 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 no. Uh, An elephant is like a string. He's got the tail. No one's like, no, no. uh, God is like a a trunk of a tree because he's got the foot. I'm like, what are you talking about? God's like a wall because he's up against the side. And often there's the idea that aren't religions basically just blind people describing the same elephant? Maybe. But if somebody says, no, 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 I've got God in my hand, and he squeaks, and somebody else says, God's got my arm in his mouth, and he's got a mane, you say, well, these aren't just like differences. These are, you're describing two different entities. And Christianity and Islam are describing very different entities. I'll just give you three. Islam says that God, Allah, is definitely not Trinitarian. He is not three in one. When you come into the the Taj Mahal, you see all these quotes about his nature. Allah is noble, he's magnificent, he's majestic, he's unique, he's eternal, he's glorious. But he is not three in one and he does not have kids. Makes it real clear. In fact, it mentions Jesus and Jews by nature. It actually says Jesus is not Allah. He's not one with God. Let me show you what it says. Next verse. Next, Next slide. Jesus is not God with us. This is what the, the, the uh, surahs say. The Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, was but a messenger of Allah. They get a high view of Jesus, but he's certainly not God or God's son. So believe in Allah and his messengers, but do not say three, for Allah is but one God, exalted. He, he, it is blasphemous to say he could have a son. Pretty distinct difference, not just font choices. He also says that Jesus was not crucified. Pretty fundamental difference here. Here's what it says in the Quran. Surely we killed Masi, Isa, son of Maryam, which is the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah. And in no way did they kill him. No, that didn't happen. And in no way did they crucify him. It was just a person who looked like him, a resemblance of Jesus, and that's why the Christians are confused. Well, that's pretty fundamental. Christianity says the crucifixion is everything about God saying, I'll do anything to show God's love for you. And the Quran says it didn't happen. So maybe you've never studied these things together. If you're interested, you can go to our app and you can click on our app. There's past messages. Push on that button. And then you can go over to our little um, magnifying glass, go to keyword search, and just type in Islam or the Quran. You'll see I did a couple of interviews with a friend of mine who's a Muslim, Majah Dabdu, where we talked about the differences between the New Testament and the Injil, as they call it, and the Quran. We talked about Jesus, Allah. We described just two real people of different faith dialoguing about that. We also did a series called Verdict. I did a series called CSI Religion. Or we have something on the website called Global Apologetics. It's actually a, a guy who used to be following of the Islamic faith. He's become a Christian, describing his journey to faith. Because see, Christianity comes along and says, listen, all that stuff is wonderful. It's a beautiful place. It's a monument to love. But the monumental love of God is shown through who Jesus is as God. Here's what it says. It says, Jesus is God showing himself to us. He is Emmanuel. This is the fundamental idea. Jesus is God with us. God's not just up there. He also came down here. 
which you call blasphemy, we call the good news. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son. And they will call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. We're not alone in this universe. Paradise is broken and lost, but God's going to come and he's going to take this God-forsaken city, this, this God-forsaken place, this God-forsaken broken paradise, and he's going to restore it again. And Jesus is one with God. He says it over and over and over and over again. John opens up his biography by saying, in the beginning was the Word. That's kind of his nickname for Jesus. The Word became flesh. And the Word was with God. They were too distinct. But also the Word was God. John writes later in a book called the Book of 1 John, there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. Now, at Horizon, you can believe every one. You can be a Buddhist, you can be a Catholic, you can be a Christian, you can be a follower of Islam. But we want to wonder about the differences. And I hope today I've given you a distinctive difference between what's a monument to love, right, and a monumental love. Because a monument to love, as beautiful as it is, as amazing as the story is, as amazing as the architecture is, a monument to love is not the same as the Bible describes as the monumental love of God who loved you so much. He said, I want you to know when you're going through loss, you can experience my monumental love. Experience my monumental love in loss and through loss. Because when you're suffering, whatever you're suffering, know that I suffered too. Experience my monumental love when you say, I don't like what's happening to me in my life. God says, I know you may not know what's happening. The one thing you can know for sure, though, it's not that I don't love you. You may not understand what you're going through, but it's not that I don't care about you because I literally left heaven, multidimensional God. I left that existence. I, I, I got squished into a body. Think how painful that would be to, live, to be a multidimensional being beyond time and space, and now you're stuck in a body. And I did that for you. So when you are going through loss, you can know you'll see people again. You can know that there's a new beginning and a, and a new start again. I want you to experience my monumental love in and through loss. As the band comes out, I want you to think about it. Even if you're like, I don't know if I believe this story. I don't know if I, it's okay. We read lots of stuff, think lots of stuff we don't believe. What if, though, there was a God who didn't just wait for you to clean up your act? He loved you in your worst moment. And what if in those worst moments, he didn't say, well, I guess I'll try another one. Hey, I guess I'll get rid of that kid and try another kid. What if a God who saw you on the wrong path, doing the wrong thing, saw you way out in the distance and said, I'm going after him. I'm getting him back. Well, okay, well, I mean, I tried. He didn't really want it. No, no, this God says, I'm going all the way. And not only did he allow nails to be pounded, stakes really, to be pounded his, his hands and his feet. He says, I will go through anything. I will go through hell itself if that's what it takes to get you back. And the story of the Bible is a God who found us in a paradise loss and said, I want you to know, I'm just not watching from a distance. I would do anything, and I did do anything to get you back. So let me lead you into prayer. We live in a time today where people are, are so either committed to religions all saying the same thing, which they don't, or being really mean to each other or even horrific with each other, like we've seen this week with the, the war and what's going on over in Israel. How can we dialogue the different ideas, see which ones are true, 
but also work toward peace. And the love of God allows you to love your enemy because Jesus loved us when we were his enemy. Let's pray together. If you want to just say to God, God, I invite your monumental love into my life. Thank you for not giving up on me. Thank you for doing anything to restore a friendship with me. And God, teach me how to love others, even my enemies, the way you love me. Thank you for dying for me. Come and live in me even now. And Father, we do pray for all the horrific things that have happened the last couple days, all the tragedy, all the terrorism, all the killing and bloodshed of innocence. Father, we ask that you would confuse the, uh, the, the ways of evil, that you would uh, protect the innocent, and God, that you would uh, stand up for what is right, and you would show us how we can pray, as you told us, to pray for the peace of, Israel, of Jerusalem and Israel. Father, we pray even now that you bring shalom to that place of chaos. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.